has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I'm your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy, and today I want to talk to you about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. I want to talk about PTSD because June is PTSD Awareness Month here in the US and June 27 is PTSD Awareness Day. Now, often when we think about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, we think about the military. And if you are a veteran or an active service member, I definitely encourage you to check out the resources available from the VA, the Veterans Affairs website. They have a wonderful booklet on understanding PTSD, or if you are a family member, I also really encourage you to find more resources. You might be asking yourself, what does PTSD have to do with gender? And we'll definitely talk about that. But for this episode, I really want to focus on a specific type of PTSD, which is complex PTSD. Complex PTSD hasn't yet been recognized by the DSM or ICD, basically the manuals and the Uh, classifications that are used by healthcare providers to talk about various conditions that people might be struggling with. But it is widely recognized amongst mental health providers. One of the books that's really popular and you may have heard about is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. But other people like Kathy Kane, who's one of the faculty for the Somatic Experiencing Training Institute, and Peter Levine, and other folks have talked about things, and Stephen Terrell, have talked about things like developmental trauma and or complex PTSD. The reason why I want to talk about complex PTSD is because I live with it. Um, You may already have listened to an episode where I talk about being a survivor, both as a child and then later as an adult, and um, but one of the things we didn't really talk about in that episode is kind of what is the impact of living with complex PTSD. And one of the reasons I wanna talk about it as a mental health provider is also to challenge stigma and to really challenge that false divide between providers and consumers of mental health services. I think we often think that kind of providers are the people who don't have any of the issues that are addressing with their clients or patients. And I think that creates kind of a false divide between people who are sick and people who are healthy. And if you are interested in uh, learning more about that, Meg John Barker and I talk about this um, in our new book, Life Isn't Binary as well. But that is kind of a false binary. And it's one of the things that I really wanna challenge because I don't think there are enough mental health providers that talk about their own struggles with issues they might be facing. But back to complex PTSD, what is it? (laughs) So complex PTSD, unlike PTSD, say from a singular event, like being um, in a combat zone or being assaulted physically or sexually, 
um, it's really about kind of repeated traumatic incidents and events and often complex PTSD is a result of abuse in kind of childhood or the earlier part of our lives. I would say that up to the age 25, given that our brain is still forming, any kind of trauma that happens then could be considered formative, could be considered as happening in that developmental window of when our brain is still kind of learning and growing and and adjusting and settling. And we know that our brain is not done growing until about age um, 25. So often complex PTSD and developmental trauma are used as kind of interchangeable. And uh, you may or may not have heard about this. I totally encourage you to Google it. There are lots of really great resources out there about complex PTSD and developmental trauma. But what are some of the things that people living with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma might experience? Often there is a sense uh, for a lot of us who live with this kind of trauma that there is something fundamentally wrong or toxic or not okay about us. And that can manifest in lots of different ways. We may have thoughts like people will be better off without us. Or we may have thoughts like everything I touch turns bad or I'm not deserving or worthy of love or affection or there's something really wrong with me and I am not like other people. And this is basically a really ingrained feeling of um, toxicity, a really deeply felt sense of not belonging with the rest of humanity. So for example, while we would never say things that are mean to other people, often we do say those things to ourselves, about ourselves. And even when I'm working with clients who are struggling with these issues, Often interventions like, would you say this to another person or what would you say to another human who is going through the same circumstances are challenging because people don't feel that that compassion, that kindness, that mindfulness and intentionality can apply to them because of this deeply ingrained feeling of toxicity of like, there's something really wrong with me. I'm not like other people. And, and that can also lead to a sense of like, if people really knew me, they would not want to be around me, they would not love me, they um, would want to get away from me. And, and that is deeply connected to this issue of kind of what is called attachment in the mental health literature. Now, I'll be really honest, I was not a big fan of attachment theory when I first came across it. I felt there was a lot of mother blaming and kind of attachment research. I had a lot of feelings about how this very early experience would define kind of somebody uh, over their life. And I realized that in some way the challenges I had with attachment theory was that it kind of touched a little bit close to home and to really embrace the fact that actually the way we are cared for from when we're in the womb, so the perinatal period that's often talked about in kind of more medical terms to when we are born and kind of those kind of early months and and years are really defining for our nervous system. That is the way that we react to the world around us. So that feeling of the something like really deeply wrong with me is kind of linked to this this issue of attachment. When we come into the world, our nervous system is not kind of ready to take on anything. We are dependent 
on our primary care caregivers to um, feel a sense of containment, experience safety, uh, feeling met. You know, we we have mirror neurons. We have a deep need. Uh, it's not even a desire. It's a really deep fundamental need in our biology to be met as human beings. And that doesn't mean that our caregivers need to be attuned to us 100% of the time. In fact, that's impossible. And we know that between baby and main caregiver, there are hundreds of moments of misattunements during the day. But it is important that there is kind of repair and that there is enough attunement. Often, really, caregivers just need to be good enough. We don't need to be perfect. But attachment can be a big issue with people with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, especially when there is developmental trauma and that PTSD is a result of kind of not being met in the way we need it to be met. So that also means that sometimes those of us who live with complex PTSD can have challenges with, rela with relationships. We might have a deep yearning to be met and to feel like we belong and connect with other people and belong to humanity alongside with everybody else and that we are deserving of love and friendship and connection. And yet there can also be a deeply felt sense of disconnection and inability to show up authentically and vulnerably to relationships so that we can connect with others. And you can see how that would be a catch-22, right? On one hand, we really need to connect and want to connect, and there is a lot of healing that can happen in that connection. And on the other hand, uh, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to do so because there is this fear, if people would really know me, they wouldn't want to be around me. So that, that can be a real barrier to lasting relationships. And one of the things that often gets in the way of um, those connections is also uh, what is called an all or nothing thinking pattern. And so that's another thing that happens with developmental trauma and complex PTSD is that there can be this all or nothing pattern, this very polarized pattern. Let me give you an example. If somebody is not available to kind of spend time with us, we might go to this place of like, they don't care about me. I'm a terrible person, um, I'm not worthy of friendship. So, you know, either somebody's my friend or somebody's not my friend, not the whole landscape of possibility that lie in between. Either I'm a good person or I'm a bad person, not I'm a human who's capable of good behaviors, bad behaviors, and everything in between. There is just not, not a lot of gray areas in all or nothing thinking. It's a pretty polarized thinking pattern and it, it's pretty common for those of us who live with complex PTSD, mostly because our nervous system hasn't got the support we needed to be able to modulate, to be able to inhabit this kind of space in between, this kind of bigger landscapes. And another aspect of that is that often for many of us, it can be hard to get started doing things. And then once we get started, it can be hard to stop. That's another facet of the all or nothing thinking. I'm either going <laughs> or not going. And I'm in one of those states, it's kind of hard to shift from one to the other. And then another thing that can happen is also is that we never feel like we're quite enough. It kind of goes all together, all together right? With the sense of toxicity. You can start seeing how all those things kind of connect with one another. 
So no matter what we achieve, no matter how much love we might receive from friends and family, there might always be a little bit of a void within us in terms of not enough. Um, and that's kind of also linked to that all or nothing pattern, right? Um, how much do I need to achieve to feel like I'm enough? Well, if I'm not completely successful, whatever that means, whatever the definition of success is, then that means I must be a failure rather than considering the huge landscape there is between failure and success, right? Huge landscapes. But if we live with complex PTSD or developmental trauma, it can be hard for us to really kind of explore those landscapes, right? And if we live with complex PTSD, we might have a range of um, responses that are very strong in our system. You might already be familiar with the idea that when something traumatic happens, we respond with fight, flight, or freeze. So fight is the activation that allows us to maybe push back or act. You know, flight is literally running away, either physically or in our mind. Dissociation is a form of flight, for example. We need to separate from what's happening in order to survive. And freeze, because also those do not happen in isolation, freeze is also this deep inability to move or do anything. So for example, we might freeze physically, but our mind might leave the moment, which is kind of a moment of flight. But another response that, that is increasingly being talked about and that is also often present, so all of those responses are just part of our nervous system. We need those responses for our survival. But what happens when there is complex PTSD or developmental trauma is that sometimes we respond as if something traumatic is happening when nothing traumatic is happening in that moment. And that also can create challenges in relationship. And as I was saying, another response besides fight, flight, or freeze that is increasingly being talked about is fawning. Fawning at the heart is about people pleasing, but not people pleasing because we want to care about other people, even though we might care about other people, but it's really a people pleasing for survival. If I keep everybody around me happy, then maybe everything would be okay and nothing bad will happen to me. Because that's another aspect of living with developmental trauma or complex PTSD. If I can find a way of controlling things around me, then maybe I will be safe. And often what the challenge is that we have a false idea of where the locus of control, the place of control is. So sometimes the locus of control, uh, as it's talked about in the kind of the psychology literature, is within us and sometimes is outside of us and other time is both end. Some control is within us and some control is outside of us. But often when there is complex PTSD or developmental trauma, we think that all the locus of control is on us. So for example, even if somebody is actively, actively harming us, we might be thinking, what is it that I'm doing that could make things better, that could make this go away? This is my fault. I remember kind of growing up how this kind of was nurtured in some way. If you only were quieter, better, nicer, then your dad wouldn't react in the way he's reacting. And I don't necessarily need to go in detail, but just suffice to say that that gave me an idea that if only I'm trying to be the best person that I can be, then people won't hurt me. And you can see how that thought distortion can really really hurt us. It's hard for many of us living with complex PTSD or developmental trauma 
to recognize when people are harming us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And it can be hard, for example, to say no or to set boundaries. Um, and the last thing I want to say before talking specifically about gender is that also often alongside with complex PTSD and developmental trauma, that can be um, addiction issues or substance use issues. And even though those are not my issue directly, I've seen many people around me struggle with those issues, not just in my professional work, but also in my personal life. And it makes sense that there would be struggles with addiction and substance use because if, as we know increasingly from recent and the literature, addiction is a disease of intimacy, it makes sense that if there is this deeply ingrained belief about being toxic, it can be hard to connect with others. Feelings can be overwhelming. That's another aspect of living with complex PTSD. The feelings can feel emotions, especially emotions that we might label as negative, even though there are no such thing as negative emotion. There are just emotions and emotions are information, but we might label some emotions are negative and they can feel so overwhelming that it's literally intolerable to our nervous system because there's no sense of containment to experience this emotions. And so um, using substances is a way of self-medicating for many people living with complex PTSD and developmental trauma and or developmental trauma. So those are kind of things that, and if you're starting to kind of recognize some of those things within yourself and you never thought about the possibility they might be linked to complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, it's okay to like take a breath and look for some resources um, kind of in this area. And I also want to say there might be other reasons why your brain works in this way. There are beginning to be some kind of there's beginning to be some evidence about how um, some folks who are neurodivergent, for example, um, how some of the brain functioning can be similar. Um, to folks who are living with complex PTSD and not enough is really understood about what's happening there you know is that the impact of systemic ableism for example because systemic ableism um, you know can definitely have a traumatic impact on the experience of any of us any of us disabled folks and definitely on neurodivergent folks or is it something about brain functioning honestly we don't know but just really wanted to name it because it's not just about individual developmental trauma, but it's also about historical, cultural, and social trauma um, that can kind of lead us to uh, experience some of those symptoms. But, you know, so what does it all have to do with gender? The podcast is Gender Stories, and here I am talking about PTSD and complex PTSD, and that impacts people of all genders, right? Absolutely, yes. And as you know, the tagline for our podcast is everyone has a relationship with gender, right? And how gender kind of is a lens through which we can look at all our experiences in life. So when we're thinking about living with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, I would say that the lens of gender is useful um, to think about in terms of our responses and how other people around us respond to the symptoms what we are experiencing. Let me kind of break that down and give you some more examples. So we've already talked about trauma responses like fight, flight, or freeze, and even fawning, fawning, people pleasing. Those are all responses 
that can be coded as gender in some way. So for example, things like setting boundaries, centering our own needs can be very difficult um, either for folks who are assigned female at birth, but also for folks of kind of various cultures where maybe that is not something that is seen as legitimate or as seen as legitimate as putting community first. Um, but also responses like anger. Anger is so useful. Often people are really afraid of anger or say things like, I don't do anger. And that makes sense, especially for those of us who have experienced violence at a young age, whether it be physical, emotional, sexual, or verbal. Um, anger is really scary. Anger can look like out of control, volatile. You never know if you're gonna be safe or not. So many of us can have really challenging relationships with anger and conflict. And also a response, like an angry response, might not be seen as legitimate for people of some genders. For example, for folks who are feminine, um, anger is not seen as legitimate, legitimate as for folks who are read as masculine, right? And on the other hand, folks who are read as masculine are seen as legitimate if they're answering, answering in an angry way, but what if their response is not anger? What if their response is freeze or flight and that is seen as not masculine in air quote? Hopefully you're starting to see how kind of gender plays a part in how do we feel we can react and how does the way we react um, impacts people around us in terms of how we are read, right? So, and, and that goes for folks of all gender and for those of us who are non-binary so much depends on how are we being read in the world right for me often it's like am i being read as feminine in this moment i'm being read as masculine am i being read read as gender ambiguous and what does that mean for my safety and what do i need to access to feel um safer in this situation do i need to feel like i am taking up space to feel safe and like i can set boundaries do I need to feel like I need to retreat and make myself smaller? And of course, those are not conscious decisions we're making with our prefrontal cortex. Those are decisions that are strongly influenced by all the stress hormones that are flooding through our body if we live with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma. Those are not decisions that we're sitting there making with a notebook, kind of calculating pros and cons. Our bodies are just gonna go and react. And then afterwards, we might think that is not the way I wanted to interact. And that's where it's really important to be able to give ourselves some compassion, which can also be challenging because of that kind of feeling of self-toxicity that we were uh, talking about earlier. And gender can also get in the way of us being able to connect with others. For a lot of folks who are masculine presenting, that can be the impossibility of connection um, in a real, authentic, vulnerable, embodied way. In kind of dominant culture, at least the dominant cultures have been part of, often the only way that masculine folks can connect is through sports or through violence, but it's, uh, or through sex. Um, and so it can be really hard to connect to other people in this kind of vulnerable, embodied way if that is not seen as legitimate within the culture. And on the other hand, you know, for folks who are read as feminine, if they're feeling angry or if they're feeling their boundaries are being crossed or that their needs are being set aside, it can be really challenging 
to express anger or to set those boundaries or to push back because that is not coded in the culture as feminine, again, in air, in air quotes. Um, and, you know, where that leaves trans and non-binary folks, you know, could be the topic of a whole other episode. Um, there's so much that I could say on, um, on this topic. For example, um, if any of you have ever heard the case of Sissy McDonald, who's a uh, local to where I live uh, on Dakota land, currently known as Minneapolis, Minnesota, here in the U.S., is what happened here some years ago was that Cece, who is um, a young black trans woman, was uh, just going food shopping in uh, the evening with her friends and was uh, assaulted uh, by a group of white folks, one of whom had a... Uh, record of violence as well as kind of uh, white supremacy and racial violence. Uh, so they got assaulted by a group of white folks. Uh, Cece had some glass smash on her face. She defended herself and one of the attackers ended up dying. As Cece defended herself with a pair of scissors, she just sat in, in her purse because uh, she was a fashion college student at the time, I believe. And uh, um, she got arrested. She was the only person arrested in that moment. And one of the things that happened as things were getting ready for the trial and the jury was being selected, one of the things that was so obvious from how things were presented in the newspapers and so on was that Cece was not seen as a woman defending herself. Cece was seen as a black woman who already has its own intersection, but because Cece is a black trans woman, she actually wasn't being seen as a woman. And in fact, she was jailed in a male prison, which is something that happens to a lot of trans feminine folks, by the way. She was seen as a black male who is uh, immediately seen as somebody who's aggressive and a threat in kind of racialized white supremacist informed dynamics here on Turtle Island, what is currently known the United States. So gender had a lot to do with how that survival response that Sisi had was being read in the judicial system and was essential to the decision of the judicial system and the attorney general at the time to prosecute her. So gender does matter when we're talking about PTSD, when we're talking about complex PTSD and or developmental trauma. And of course, we know that gender, it's not just its own thing. It intersects with those other aspects of our identity, like race and, and ethnicity, disability, citizenship, you know, economics, class, kind of all of those things kind of intersects together. So the way that responses are read and the way that we might even feel we can or cannot respond when triggered, um, if we're living with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, can have a lot to do with gender. And our management strategies, that is the strategies that we've developed for our survival, can have a lot to do with gender. We, are, we probably develop certain strategies because of both our felt sense of gender or how the, our gender was read against, around us, um, as well as kind of, you know, our own interpersonal neurobiology. So this might seem really bleak. Um, this is, you know, I'm sorry, listeners, if you feel like all I'm talking about 
lately is really challenging stuff. Um, I promise that I will have some episodes that are not about trauma um, in uh, in your future, but um, I really wanted to honor uh, kind of the fact that June is PTSD month here uh, in what is currently known as the United States. So if one of the things I really want to talk about now towards the end of the episode is that if we live with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, that doesn't mean we're doomed to never feel enough in our life. I mean, that would be super sad, right? I mean, we know from studies like the ACE study, adverse childhood events, you know, if you have never heard about the ACE study, I invite you to kind of check it out. You can Google adverse childhood events and uh, come up with um, some information about that. We know that what happens to us in our developmental kind of stages of life impacts us and impacts our health, not just our mental health, but also our physical health. But that doesn't mean we're destined to like stay victims for the rest of our lives or feel like we're not enough for the rest of our life. We know that we have the beautiful capacity to retrain our our brain. It's called neuroplasticity. It's one of the most exciting things I think that has come out of kind of neurobiology, um, you know, in, the, in more recent years. And that's really kind of become popular beyond just neuroscience. So this idea that we can, um, we can retrain our brain. If we, for example, struggle with all or nothing patterns, we can do things to start training our brain so that we can explore those beautiful landscapes that are between poles like good and bad, right? Or doing and not doing, all those kind of things. So neuroplasticity is definitely our friend. A lot of the trauma healing work that I do for myself and with other people as a mental health provider is really to say, okay, these are the responses that we've developed for survival, and now we want to develop new responses. We want to develop new neural pathways. And I won't lie to you, it's hard work. I mean, in some ways, our management strategies, our usual responses are like this beautiful railroad tracks. They've been built, they've been well-kept, they're well-maintained, there are kind of stations on the way. The tracks are always well oiled and our brain can go down those tracks so fast we can hardly notice that that's what we're doing. Whereas creating new neural pathways is like scoping out the landscape. What are the new tracks that we want to lay down? And then it's like putting in all the work, right? Clearing the landscape and putting down the tracks and then kind of building them piece by piece and then making sure that, you know, we are careful at those stations where hang on which which uh track is my brain going down oh it's a usual track hang on let's switch let's see if i can go down this new track it's really hard it's a lot of hard work but i think it's worth it and yes that is the gift of neuroplasticity the fact that we can train our brain to respond in different ways and we can also get to know our brain so that we know what our trauma responses are and we can detect eventually earlier and earlier and earlier when we're starting to become triggered at a time when we can still intervene. Because once we are actually fully triggered, our prefrontal cortex literally goes offline. So we are not in what could be called our right mind, in air quote, but we're literally reacting from a place where we do not feel safe and we're reacting from a place of survival rather than a place of presence in the year and now. 
And that in some ways is at the heart of PTSD is that we're not reacting to what is happening here in this moment, in the here and now, we are reacting through the lens of our past. And that past does include all the gendered patterns that we've developed and that might be closely intertwined with our survival responses. And the other thing that I would say is that one of the things that help us change those neural pathways is really challenging rigid boundaries. In some ways, all or nothing, this or that, polarized thinking is a rigid binary. And so all rigid binaries, including rigid gender binaries, do not serve us when we live with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma. In fact, softening those binaries challenging those binaries is part of healing in a lot of ways and like i said earlier in this episode if you want to know more about challenging binaries and how nurturing that can be for our well-being not just on an individual level but also on a cultural and social level please do check out uh, the new book by mac john barker and i life isn't binary we kind of start from uh, sexuality and gender and kind of challenging binaries around that but then we also talk about bodies and emotions and relationships and thinking and how kind of challenging those binaries can be really helpful in all of those areas so if you live with PTSD or complex PTSD and or developmental trauma um, thank you for listening to this episode I know that some of the things I've talked about might have been triggering I We'll put a content note on the episode, but um, I also just really want to honor that it's not easy to talk about those things. And I hope that you have all the support you need in your life. And if not, I invite you to look for that support because you deserve it. I know that for many of us, we have that feeling of um, being ultimately toxic or not good, but you do deserve support. You do deserve to have your needs met. You do deserve deserve love and friendship and connection. And uh, I hope that you can take as good and gentle care of yourself as you're able to in this moment. And if you cannot, I hope that you can let that be okay. Let yourself be just where you're at. And if you take a moment to reflect on how gender impacts your survival responses, um, see if that's how you still want to respond or if there are, or if there are ways um, in which you could challenge maybe some of those management strategies to do something that feels more supportive, more nurturing for you. And if you are in relationship either through family or romantic or work or other type of relationship with somebody who lives with complex PTSD and or developmental trauma, I hope you can understand how deeply... Um, those symptoms go and how hard the path to healing is and healing doesn't mean that one day we're going to just be magically well but it just means that we understand ourselves more intimately that we can have more self-compassion and that we have more tools um, to manage what has happened to us and to manage our nervous system and responses and our survival responses So until next episode, please take good and gentle care of yourself and each other. And please do get all the support that you need. You deserve it. Thank you for listening.